Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, The ABCs of Connective Tissue Disease Pulmonary Arterial Hypertension, Algorithms, Team-Based Approach, and Combination Therapy, is provided by the Academy for Continued Healthcare Learning and supported by an educational grant from Actelion Pharmaceuticals U.S. Incorporated, a Janssen Pharmaceutical Company of Johnson & Johnson. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hi, I'm John Ryan. Welcome to our educational session today. We're going to be talking about screening for pulmonary arterial hypertension in patients with connective tissue disease. So I am a director of pulmonary hypertension at clinic at the University of Utah. And today we're going to be covering the recommendations for screening and then actually also how you do your screening when looking for pulmonary arterial hypertension. The reason that you screen in the setting of connective tissue disease is because of the increased prevalence of pulmonary arterial hypertension in people with connective tissue disease. And I always think about this is that, you know, we quote the prevalence of pulmonary arterial hypertension in the general population about being one in about 100,000, something along those lines, rare disease. In people with connective tissue disease, scleroderma, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, mixed connective tissue disease, among others, the prevalence is, is much higher. It's about 5%, so it's about 1 in 20. So it's still, uh, if you have connective tissue disease, it's still unlikely or le uncommon to develop pulmonary arterial hypertension. But the relative risk is much higher, going from 1 in 100,000 to 1 in 20, clearly is a several-fold increased risk. The other reason that it's important uh, to screen for pulmonary arterial hypertension in connective tissue disease is because the delay in diagnosis results in worse outcomes. So if you, we know that the average length diagnosis from symptom onset to diagnosis of pulmonary arterial hypertension is about two years already. So in people with connective tissue disease, due to some challenges with the diagnostic uh, criteria, which we're going to touch on in a couple of short minutes, ultimately they can end up with the diagnosis being delayed. Unsurprisingly then, more advanced disease, patients with more advanced disease at presentation therefore have worse outcomes. Now, the other issue is that people with connective tissue disease, people with lupus, people with scleroderma, people with mixed connective tissue disease and rheumatoid arthritis who go on to develop pulmonary arterial hypertension, their prognosis is much worse than people who have idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. We already know that the prognosis for idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension is is, is poor. Medicines help, but it remains poor. Uh, but the long-term outcomes with connective tissue disease associated pulmonary arterial hypertension are significantly worse. In our experience as well, they don't, people with connective tissue disease associated pulmonary arterial hypertension don't necessarily respond to treatment as well as, for example, idiopathic or hereditary. So that earlier detection allows an earlier intervention Try not to fall behind in terms of getting treatment initiated and really being aggressive with the different therapies that we're familiar with in pulmonary arterial hypertension. And in particular, as you're 
as is increasingly used in combination therapies. So with that in mind, the Sixth World Symposium published in to the early 2019, the Sixth World Symposium for Pulmonary Arterial Hypertension recommended annual screening for people with scleroderma, also known as systemic sclerosis, uh, recommended do, uh, annual screening. Also, if people have systemic sclerosis or, or scleroderma and their DLCO is low, less than 80% are predicted, they should also be uh, screened annually for, uh, at the time actually, for pulmonary arterial hypertension. We'll touch more on that in a second. And although scleroderma is the highest risk, there is so much overlap between these diseases, lupus, mixed connective tissue disease, which by definition is mixed connective tissue disease. There's a whole host of different symptoms and signs in there. Primary Sjogren's syndrome, um, rheumatoid arthritis, idiopathic inflammatory myopathies. All of these things put you at higher risk of pulmonary arterial hypertension. And we would include screening all of these patients once a year with an echocardiogram. Echocardiogram, touched on in a second, is pretty accurate in terms of picking this up early, uh, but it's just a matter of doing it every year. And it's also, you do have to be comfortable with having a lot of normal echoes, because as I said, the prevalence or the, yeah, sorry, the risk is one in 20. So that means 19 out of 20 people with these connective tissue diseases will not have pulmonary arterial hypertension on their echocardiogram. So there can be a little, not necessarily frustration, but you do need to appreciate that you'll have a lot of negatives for a lot of years before you'll find someone who actually has pulmonary arterial hypertension. But again, going back, because their prognosis is so poor, it's important to screen for it among everyone. Echocardiogram remains, and likely will always be, our uh, most important non-invasive screening tool. It is important, however, for the echocardiogram to be what I refer to as RV-centric, right ventricular-centric. Echocardiograms in clinical practice are oftentimes focused on the left ventricle. What's the left ventricular ejection fraction? What's the mitral valve looks like? What's the aortic valve look like? And for good reason, left heart disease, mitral valve disease, and aortic valve disease are far, far more common than pulmonary arterial hypertension and more likely to be the cause of patient symptoms. But uh, in our world, in our pulmonary arterial hypertension world and in our connective tissue disease world, it is just as important, if not more important, to really what I like to say, to really frisk the right ventricle. So the first thing you do is you do an echocardiogram and uh, you look at the tricuspid regurgitation volume. The tricuspid valve is located between the right ventricle and the right, ventric right atrium. Therefore, if there is an increase in what we call afterloads, so if pulmonary artery pressures are increased, the blood will not go as quickly in a forward direction but some of it will actually come back and that will drive the tricuspid regurgitation. And unsurprisingly, the faster at which it comes back, the higher the pressures downstream. So if you, uh, and these are the cutoffs that we use in echocardiograms, if yours is low, less than three, then the likelihood of you having pulmonary hypertension is low. If yours is greater than about uh, three and a half, then the likelihood of you having pulmonary arterial hypertension is quite high. And then in that three to three and a half range, uh, you're in an intermediate risk of having pulmonary arterial hypertension. What I do then when you are, really if you're in any of these low, intermediate or high risk, is actually tricuspid regurgitation is actually just one thing 
that you're looking at when you're looking at an echocardiogram screening for pulmonary arterial hypertension. And I actually tell our trainees that the tricuspid regurgitation is the last thing that I look at. The first thing that we look at is the right ventricle. If the right ventricle is bigger than the left ventricle, this is important because as I've told you, a lot of labs are LV centric. We'll turn that probe just a little bit, focus on the right ventricle. And if the right ventricle is bigger than the left ventricle, then by definition, and it's an enlarged right ventricle. Trainees will often ask me what size of the right ventricle need to be to define it as enlarged. And you'll see different textbooks in terms of different cutoffs, four centimeters, three and a half centimeters, stuff along these lines. I'm a simple man with simple pleasures. And I think that just having the right ventricle bigger than the left ventricle, that's enough for you to say that this person is high likelihood or increased likelihood of having pulmonary arterial hypertension, especially when they have risk factors such as connective tissue disease. There's also the interventricular septum. Now, this is between the right ventricle and the left ventricle, the interventricular septum. The left ventricle, because it pumps blood to the body, is usually a much higher pressure system than the right ventricle. Pumps blood to the lungs. All there is in the lungs is air. Therefore, the pressure on the right side needs to be low or doesn't need to be high. If the interventricular septum is flattened, that means that the right ventricular pressures are now getting close to the left ventricular pressures. And in that setting, uh, if the right ventricular pressures are getting close to the left ventricular pressures, the septum will start flattening, so it won't move into the right, which is normally what happens. It won't move into the right. It'll be a flattened interventricular septum. And again, this is indicative of the presence of elevated pulmonary arterial pressures on the right side of the heart, and uh, in the right setting with connective tissue diseases is indicative of pulmonary arterial hypertension. So is another echo feature which uh, you should follow. Pulmonary artery itself then, the key one is really the size of the pulmonary artery. Greater, the pulmonary artery should not be greater than two and a half centimeters, 25 millimeters. The pulmonary artery should not be that big. So if you get an echo report and they say mildly dilated pulmonary artery, that person has pulmonary hypertension, whether it's pulmonary arterial hypertension or pulmonary hypertension due to heart disease or COPD. That needs to be worked up, but they have pulmonary hypertension. So again, if you see someone with connective tissue disease, their uh, pulmonary artery is enlarged, then you need to think about pulmonary arterial hypertension or at least pulmonary hypertension in general. There are other measurements you can make through the pulmonary artery in terms of velocities. We talked about the tricuspid regurgitation velocity earlier. There are other velocities you can look at flow through the right uh, ventricular outflow tract, um, diastolic or pulmonary regurgitation, as well as tricuspid regurgitation, pulmonary regurgitation, give you an idea. Those measurements are a little harder to do, especially when you end up with, for example, some obesity. Uh, they're a little harder to define. So we really rely on the pulmonary artery diameter. But just the same way, if you play risk, if you play the game risk, Australia is the key to the whole game. And just the same way that Australia is the key to the whole game in risk, the right atrium is the key to the whole game in pulmonary arterial hypertension. The right atrium will determine your prognosis and likely your symptoms. And if the right atrium is big, if you have a large right atrium, 18 square centimeters, some people just say 20 just because it's a nice round number. So if your right atrial area gets to 18, 20 millimeters, sorry, 18 to 20 cent square centimeters, that's an enlarged right atrium. That in the right setting, exertional dyspnea, connective tissue disease, low DLCO, that's indicative of pulmonary arterial hypertension. You can also look at the inferior vena cava 
And if that's dilated, then that is reflective of the fact that the right atrial pressures are high. The IVC feeds into the right atrium. If the IVC is dilated because the IVC has higher pressures, guess what? The right atrium has higher pressures because the right atrium backs up into the IVC. So if your right atrium, sorry, if your IVC is dilated, that means that your right atrial pressures are increased. And I've already told you that the right atrium is the key to the whole game. So if you're bigger, if the right atrium is increased in size or increased in pressure, that's indicative of pulmonary arterial hypertension. And that's actually fairly indicative of prognosis as well. So look at the IVC, look at the right atrium, look at the right ventricle, and look at the pulmonary artery. And if you don't do those things, and if they're all normal, then you're really comfortable. Come back in a year, we'll do it again. If those are abnormal, you need to work it up. There are then additional tests for screening, which really complement the echocardiogram that we just talked about. By far and away, the most useful thing for screening is a history, their history of the connective tissue disease and their history of symptoms. Then the next is the echocardiogram. And these next two then are... Um, kind of the, the next um, line in terms of determining uh, screening tests. One is, I made a brief mention to earlier, if your DLCO, your diffusion capacity, if that's decreased, but your spirometry is normal, FEV1, FVC, etc., your FEV1 is normal, your FVC is normal, but you got a wicked low DLCO, that's pulmonary arterial hypertension. Now, admittedly, it can also be pulmonary fibrosis or or maybe even some um, other restrictive lung disease can sometimes be heart failure. Either way, it's a bad sign. You have normal spirometry with a low DLCO. That's a bad sign. That needs to be worked up. The most common and most sinister uh, reason is pulmonary arterial hypertension. But regardless of the underlying etiology, it needs to be worked up because it carries a poor prognosis. Then the NT-Pro BNP. Some people, depending on your lab, might use regular old BNP. Other people use N-terminal pro BNP. If that is two times higher than normal, um, then that is indicative of a high risk of having heart failure or pulmonary arterial hypertension. So that needs to be worked up. And the workup is a referral for a right heart catheterization. So if any of these screening tests are positive, echo, DLCO, and terminal pro BNP, or if your symptoms have just raised your, raised your suspicions so high, then you refer on for a right heart catheterization. So in summary, the take-home points here are you've got to screen your people with connective tissue disease every year. Screening with the echo is the best bet. First of all, they could have heart failure. They could have left-sided heart failure, but they can also have pulmonary hypertension, in particular pulmonary arterial hypertension. And now what I'd like you to do is join me for the next chapter in our connective tissue disease series, which is how to diagnose pulmonary arterial hypertension in patients with connective tissue disease. Thank you for joining me. I hope this was a rewarding discussion. Hi, I'm John Ryan. Today we're going to be talking about diagnosing pulmonary arterial hypertension in patients with connective tissue disease. So I am, uh, run the pulmonary hypertension program at the University of Utah. And the things we're going to touch on today are the barriers to diagnosing pulmonary arterial hypertension in patients with connective tissue disease. And we're also going to go over the diagnostic algorithm and the clinical nuances 
in patients with connective tissue disease. I often refer to the diagnostic algorithm as job security. It's so complex that oftentimes when people look at it, they throw up their hands and say, Cara, listen, I'm just going to send it to a pulmonary hypertension center. That, I think, is actually a very reasonable thing to do. And, and any of us who runs P, run PH programs are very welcoming to that, acknowledging the fact that how hard it can be, especially in community practice or in rural parts of this country, how hard it can be to coordinate all the necessary diagnostic workups. As is often quoted and we're often reminded of, there remains a delay to diagnosing pulmonary arterial hypertension. And that delay is just under two years. From symptom onset to diagnosis, there's a delay of two years in terms of diagnosing pulmonary arterial hypertension. That's too long. The reason for that delay is because the symptoms are deemed to be vague and nonspecific. Fatigue. A lot of people go into their primary care providers with fatigue. Exercise intolerance. Guess what? I'm getting shorter breath walking up a hill, getting shorter breath walking up a flight of stairs. And 90% of people present with dyspnea, shortness of breath. I used to be able to walk five miles without a concern. Now I'm getting shorter breath at one mile, or now I'm getting shorter breath inside a house. And I said, so 90% of people presenting with dyspnea and then various combinations of fatigue and exercise intolerance, it does admittedly get challenging. Because if our primary care providers ordered echoes, the main screening tool being echo, if our primary care providers ordered echoes on everybody who was short of breath, they'd be ordering echoes all day long. So trying to figure out who has, who's out of breath because they just haven't been exercising or they've put on weight versus who's out of breath because they've developed pulmonary hypertension is very challenging, especially because, at least as we know in this country, obesity is such a high prevalence, 30, 40, 50% of the population having obesity or being overweight, versus pulmonary arterial hypertension, which is one in 100,000 people, is that it's understandable uh, why at least there's a delay to echocardiogram, which then ultimately leads to a delay to diagnosis. It also can be hard to iron out which symptoms are due to um, progression of the connective tissue disease versus which symptoms are due to new onset pulmonary arterial hypertension. So you have scleroderma, you have lupus, you have mixed connective tissue disease or some sort of inflammatory myopathy. You're not feeling that good anyway. So it can be hard to figure out, are you now have, has your clinical decline, has it been because you're not feeling good and your disease has gotten worse? Or is your clinical decline because you developed new disease? Now you have pulmonary arterial hypertension as well as having scleroderma. And that can be challenging. The other part of this that's challenging is within pulmonary, within connective tissue diseases, the risk of developing pulmonary arterial hypertension is about 5%, 1 in 20. The risk for everyone else, those of us who do not have connective tissue disease, is about 1 in 100,000. But there are also a lot of other diseases that they're at risk for when you have a connective tissue disease. You're also at risk for interstitial lung disease. You're at risk for left-sided heart disease, regular old true blue heart failure, heart failure reduced ejection fraction, heart failure preserved ejection fraction, systolic or diastolic heart failure. There are also then two uncommon diseases, pulmonary veno-occlusive disease, an uncommon disease where the pulmonary veins actually develop changes similar to PAH, but on the venous side. 
And then a uh, condition referred to as chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, which is quite a mouthful, abbreviated to CTEF. And this is group four pulmonary hypertension, accounts for about 1% of all forms of pulmonary hypertension, but is distinguished by the fact that it's curable with open heart surgery or more specifically open lung surgery um, with a pulmonary endarterectomy. It's particularly common in patients with lupus. And guess what? All of these diseases, pulmonary arterial hypertension, interstitial lung disease, left side heart disease, pulmonary vein occlusive disease, and CTEF, all of them present with shortness of breath, and all of them have increased uh, pulmonary artery pressure as an echocardiogram. So it really does rely on doing other workups to determine the, which is the underlying etiology. Now, the diagnostic algorithm, my goodness, as I've said, it is complex. It is complex and intimidating until you take a step back and just think, what are you trying to do here? You are trying to look at why someone is short of breath. Let's take pulmonary hypertension out of the picture altogether. You have someone who comes in with you with shortness of breath. What are you going to do? I would propose you should do an echo. Do an echocardiogram. I know, as I said before, a lot of people are short of breath because of obesity or other reasons. But try and do an echocardiogram. If the echocardiogram is normal or gives you a low likelihood of having pulmonary hypertension, then you're done from the pulmonary hypertension standpoint. You still need to do a workup for the shortness of breath. It could still be interstitial lung disease, for example. So you still need to do PFTs. But the echocardiogram can give you an indication of, um, of how likely they are to have pulmonary hypertension. Before you do the echo, though, I want to take one more step back and actually say that the backbone of your diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension is actually your history and exam. The regular old H&P, as you call it, in this country, history and physical exam. So really emphasize those, look for symptoms of pH, shortness of breath, fatigue, exercise intolerance, maybe even some chest pain, some syncope. Look for signs of pulmonary hypertension, increased pressures in the right side of the heart, right ventricular heave when you put your hand on the chest, peripheral edema. And then you can do some laboratory testing as well and terminal pro BMP, for example. But again, if someone's coming in with shortness of breath, these are the things you should be looking for anyway. These are the questions you should be asking anyway, and these are the tests you should be doing anyway. So you get an echo and it's higher intermediate probability of pulmonary hypertension, what's next? You can just refer to a pulmonary hypertension center, as I said. We'll welcome them with open arms. But you can also do a VQ scan. As we said, CTEF is a curable form of pulmonary hypertension. So it is worthwhile just seeing is, can I do a VQ scan? Is that enough to determine the causes of their shortness of breath? And if it is, if the VQ scan is abnormal, guess what? Now you're referring to a pulmonary hypertension center animal. So if you want, you can uh, refer for the VQ scan or you can refer to the pH team and then have them do the VQ scan. Now, by far and away, as I often say, 60% of pulmonary hypertension is due to left side of heart disease. So, and then about 30% is due to chronic hypoxic lung disease. Things like pulmonary fibrosis, sleep apnea, COPD, obesity hypoventilation syndrome. It's that final 10% that's pulmonary arterial hypertension or pulmonary vascular disease because there's a small component of CTEF. But 90% likelihood, if you have someone with pulmonary hypertension, there's 90% likelihood it's due to left side of heart disease, FPEF, FREP, valvular heart disease, or due to chronic hypoxic lung disease. So that's the workup that you do. You make sure there's no left side of heart disease. You make sure there's no lung disease. How do you do the latter? You do pulmonary function tests. Do pulmonary function tests 
Make sure your FEV1 and FEC are normal. If they're not normal, then you're looking at restrictive lung disease or obstructive lung disease. But if you've done the workup for pulmonary hypertension, or as I like to say, if you've done the workup for dyspnea, then the key, and you have found no clinically significant left-sided heart disease or chronic hypoxic lung disease, then you're referring to a pulmonary hypertension center. Uh, or expert center in order to coordinate treatment and uh, and continue the follow the workup. Now the management of the pulmonary hypertension center is not that much different. It's really the same. It's just we have bigger infrastructure and we have dedicated teams towards this. Those who work in primary care have teams, but they're dedicated to everything: the prostate cancer screening, breast cancer screening, calling up results of lipid levels, psychiatric uh, illnesses. So we in pulmonary hypertension centers, we have teams that are dedicated to the work of pulmonary hypertension. We've got nurses, advanced practice clinicians, medical assistants. We got the whole gamut. So we are very comfortable doing the workup. And as I said, the workup of the pulmonary hypertension center is not that different from the workup, or not different at all, in fact, from the workup outside the pulmonary hypertension expert center. You do the VQ scan. VQ scan is abnormal. You're heading down towards CTEF and, uh, and you're working towards it. If the view scan is sorry, the VQ scan is normal, then you're doing this diagnostic workup, ruling out left-sided heart disease, ruling out lung disease, and then you do a right heart catheterization. And if the right heart for the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension, and also for the classification, because in your right heart catheterization, yes, all of these people, if you've adequately screened them out, all of these people will have elevated pulmonary artery pressures. What you're trying to figure out, however, is are their pulmonary artery pressures increased due to um, pulmonary arterial hypertension or, more commonly, left-sided heart disease? And the way you do that is you do measurement. Uh, it's quite a mouthful as well. It's called pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. And you measure a wedge pressure. If the wedge is high, then the disease, the pulmonary and PA pressures are high, then it's due to uh, pulmonary hypertension from left-sided heart disease. If the pulmonary artery pressures are high and the wedge is low, then you're very confident and comfortable attributing the pulmonary hypertension to pulmonary vascular disease, such as pulmonary arterial hypertension. However, and I hope I'm not distracting you from this, but this is why we feel, those of us in the PH community feel, that you need to do the rest of the workup before the right heart catheterization. If you have a high PA pressure and you have a low wedge, you do not know if that truly is due to pulmonary arterial hypertension or if it's due to hypoxic lung disease, or if it's due to CTEF, you don't know. So that's why it's important to do pulmonary function tests before doing the right heart catheterization, as well as do a VQ scan before you do the right heart catheterization, so that when you get those numbers, you can tell, you can have the patient can leave the cath lab knowing that their diagnosis is group one, two, three, four, or less commonly five. So that's why you do the workup beforehand. Now, the right heart cath is reviewed, the case is reviewed typically by a multidisciplinary pulmonary hypertension team such as ours, and then you classify it, and then you start treatment. You start the treatment for, if it's group one, for pulmonary arterial hypertension, sildenafil, uh, masutentin, things along those lines. If you're still not sure where they fall, then you can consider a trial of treatment, or you can monitor and bring it back in about three months. Now, if they have group two pulmonary hypertension, then you're focusing on diuretics, blood pressure control, uh, trying to improve the heart. If you diagnose them with group three pulmonary hypertension, then you're working towards looking at 
bronchodilators, treatment for pulmonary fibrosis, stuff along those lines. If you've group four, as we said, then you're heading towards surgery, pulmonary endarterectomy. And if you've group five, then there's a whole, whole host of other things you're doing. Now, connective tissue disease is hard. And there are a lot of nuances to the treatment and to the diagnosis. As I mentioned, the history, the symptoms and signs may not entirely reflect pulmonary hypertension and in particular pulmonary arterial hypertension. So you can get a little lost in the weeds there. The lab tests, these connective tissue diseases, especially lupus and scleroderma, they're multi-organ diseases. They're going to have maybe some bone marrow suppression, so they'll be anemic. They're going to have kidney disease, uh, so their creatinine will be up. You don't know if they have anemia because they've got bone marrow suppression from their underlying connective tissue disease, or if they got anemia due to anemia chronic disease from having heart failure or pulmonary hypertension. You don't know if their creatinine has gone up because the scleroderma is now involved in the kidneys, or if because the PA pressures are so high that it's backing up into the right atrium, backing up into the IVC, and back uh, fluids are building up into the, into the kidneys, which therefore makes them not work very well and therefore um, causes some kidney failure. BNP and N-terminal BNP can still be unreliable. In a third of people admitted with decompensated heart failure, the BNP ends up being normal. Autoantibodies, blood glucose, all these things, the imaging, the echocardiogram, we talked about like this in chapter one, where we talked about using the echocardiogram as a screening tool, looking at the estimated right ventricular systolic pressures, but arguably more importantly, looking at the right atrium size, right ventricular size, right ventricular function, and then the pulmonary artery size. The pulmonary function test, there's nuances there. As I've said, you've got normal spirometry, you've got a decreased DLCO, that's likely pulmonary arterial hypertension. However, if you have abnormal spirometry, decrease FEV1, decrease FEC, and you have a DL, decrease in DLCO, that could be restrictive lung disease. But guess what? There is no law saying that you can only have one, one disease, so you can have restrictive lung disease, such as pulmonary fibrosis, and also have pulmonary arterial hypertension. Cardiopulmonary excess tolerance testing then can be challenging, especially over the last year with COVID because of all the exhaled and inhaled um, uh, gases with exercise. Six-minute walk tests can be affected by things other than pulmonary arterial hypertension. Granted, our clinical trials have relied heavily on six-minute walk tests, but if you have connective tissue disease, you've got arthritis, you've got scleroderma, you've got weight loss, guess what? That's going to impact your six-minute walk distance as well. And then the right heart catheterization, I tried to make it simple for you there by saying that if the wedge is high, it's left side of heart disease, but then I said if the wedge is low, then you have all these other things it could be. Group one, group three, group four, group five. So it does require it does require a set of eyes that do this all the time. Even if it's just for the diagnosis, even if it's just day, you know, day one to 30, get them into a pulmonary hypertension center, they give you the diagnosis and then have a discussion with that team to say, do you want to continue to follow them or can you know can we coordinate care in the primary care setting? So in summary. Someone comes in with you, connected to disease and short of breath, you've got to think of the uncommon things, pulmonary arterial hypertension most particularly. The diagnostic algorithm, job security, as I said, listen, any pH program will be delighted to do the workup for you. If you want to keep the workup in-house and then send it on to us to evaluate, happy to do that too. But just make sure that you do a thorough workup. And as I said, although we say the workup is for pulmonary hypertension, really that workup is just for shortness of breath.
So that wraps up chapter two. Hopefully this has been a rewarding experience for you. We'll see you on the other side of chapter three. We're going to touch on the treatment of connective tissue disease associated pulmonary arterial hypertension. Thank you for your time. Hello, I'm John Ryan, cardiologist and director of pulmonary hypertension at University of Utah. Today, we're going to be talking about, we're in chapter three of our series for connective tissue disease associated pulmonary arterial hypertension. And we're going to be talking about insights for the treatment of connective tissue disease associated pulmonary arterial hypertension. We will be relying heavily on the chest treatment algorithm I was one of the authors on the CHEST guidelines. We're going to do specific treatment considerations for connective tissue disease associated pulmonary arterial hypertension. A lot of that really uh, depends on some subgroup analyses from clinical trials. And then we're going to look at what's coming down the road. People you say in Boston, coming down the pike. And then other people say coming down the pike. So lots of different things coming out there. And uh, we want to we wanna look at each of those. Okay. The treatment algorithm for pulmonary arterial hypertension really, through thick and thin, depends on symptoms. If they pay in functional class, so you really got to be careful, and you really have, as the Americans would say, you really have to put your nickel down as to what is their functional class. Functional class one, two, three, or four. Functional class one is easy. It's people who are not short of breath at all. No symptoms, just came up on a screening echo, something like that. Functional class four is also easy. People who are short of breath at rest. Those people need to be started on parenteral prostacyclines. Where we really have a hard time making decisions is people who are functional class two and functional class three. Functional class two is described as getting shorter breath on moderate exertion. Functional class three is described as getting shorter breath on mild exertion. There, what's mild for some might be moderate for someone else. So there is some subjectivity there. One of the things that uh, our colleague um, that our team describes is discussion of if you are shorter breath outside the house and if you can get outside the house, then you're functional class two. If you get shorter breath inside the house, for example, walking up the flight of stairs, putting on your clothes, um, doing, you know, cooking, then you're functional class three. So that's another way of looking at it. So then, as I said, the treatment really depends on the functional class. So you really have to commit to what is that functional class of the patient. If they're functional class one, came up on a screening echo, they have connective tissue disease, they got out of their annual echo, pulmonary hypertension came up, then actually you can kind of figure out what you want to do. There's no trials to show that functional class one should or can be treated. But you can determine when you want to start treatment and determine if there is some sort of uh, functional decline. Now, if they're functional class two, then you got to talk to the patient about starting treatment. The typical algorithm in 2021 is to start with what's called upfront dual combination therapy or dual combination therapy, as the Americans would say. So, you, And this is driven by what's called the ambition trial, which will show subsequently. But there was a time when I was a younger man, there was a time when you would start one drug, follow the patient along. If the patient got sicker, you'd start a second drug and then follow the patient along again. 
However, we learned that that wasn't actually a great approach because as you can imagine, when someone got sicker, it was hard to get them back to where they wanted to be. So the upfront dual combination therapy of a phosphogesterase 5 inhibitor, often tadalafil, with an endothelial receptor antagonist, often ambrosentin, is the recommendation for people who are function class 2. Now, as I said, the combination therapy is in the trial, in the admission trial, is tadalafil and ambrosentin. But I've seen every which way combination. You can do sildenafil and ambrosentin, tadalafil and masitentin, sildenafil and masitentin. Some people even do reassiguat and abrocentin or reassiguat and uh, masitentin. And then you can maybe even throw bocentin in there. So there really is um, a different uh, potpourri of upfront dual combination therapies that you can use. But ultimately, the recommendation is to get people on two drugs. There are some circumstances, and me and my team were talking about this today with one patient. There are some circumstances where you'll go with one drug, maybe as a trial, maybe to see if they can truly tolerate it. But for the most part, functional class 2 starting two drugs. Functional class 3, the recommendation is also to start on two drugs. And again, this is driven by the ambition trial. And when we say two drugs, we mean a phosphogesterase 5 inhibitor and endothelial receptor antagonist. Start those two drugs, continue to follow the patient closely. If there is a clinical decline, or if they presented with functional class 4 symptoms right out the gate, then, as I said, the decision-making becomes a lot easier because that does require parenteral prostacyclins, intravenous or subcutaneous prostacyclins. The intravenous forms are epoprostenol, the other end, and triprostenol. The subcutaneous form is just triprostenol. And that really is the recommendations when people are functional class four. Now, what makes you function class four again? Shorter breath at rest. Actually, also, I think if you have angina, but in particular, if you have syncope, if you're passing out, then you're functional class four. So they should be started on parenteral prostacyclins. So let's take a step back and think of those four again. Functional class one, no symptoms, maybe follow them, maybe start a single drug, see how things are looking. Functional class two, you are short of breath when you're out, outside the house, walking up a hill, doing your grocery shopping, you're getting short of breath. They should be started on combination therapy. Functional class three, you're short of breath inside the house, dressing yourself, walking to the bathroom, doing cooking, you're short of breath. Your function class three, those people should start on upfront dual combination therapy. Functional class four, you're short of breath at rest or you're passing out, they need to start on parenteral process cycles. Now, unfortunately, if they have disease that's so advanced, you do, however, need to also consider a lung transplant. That is, the, that is a curative t- treatment for pulmonary arterial hypertension. Now, admittedly, you swap out one disease for another. You swap out having pulmonary arterial hypertension for having lung transplant. You still need to be on medicine. But that is uh, something that's worth considering. And for us, at least, anytime we start patients on prostacyclines, we also have them see the lung transplant team. The other thing to bear in mind is that if you started a function class two, if you started a function class three, and you're on your dual combination therapy, and you start to clinically decline, your trajectory is going that you're going to continue to decline even more. And we know the natural history of this disease, that's progressive disease. We don't have any cures available at the moment. We'll touch on some novel investigative treatments towards the end of this chapter, but we don't have any cures. So it's important to bear that in mind that you're on your dual combination therapy, you progress, then 
you need to be started on a third agent. And that third agent can be something like an oral prostacyclin like selexipag or, or, or oral triprostin. Or it can be a, um, maybe you change over from sildenafil to resigot, or you start an inhaled agent or something along those lines, or you bite the bullet and you start intravenous or subcutaneous prostacyclins. But either way, if you have a clinical deterioration and you're on two drugs, you need to be on more, you need to make a change and you likely need to be on um, more drugs or at least different drugs. Now, the goal, as I said, of treatment is determined by the functional class, but the ultimate aim of treatment then is to make people feel better and hopefully make people live longer. However, a challenge with connective tissue disease is just that. They have underlying connective tissue disease. This disease is not isolated to the lungs. It's not even isolated to the pulmonary arteries. They have involvement of their lung airways, pulmonary fibrosis. They have involvement of their heart, heart failure. They have involvement of the kidneys. They have involvement of the skin. Their GI tract is disease. So you also have to bear in mind when you're treating these patients that they also have other diseases, underlying, underlying, sorry, other underlying connective tissue diseases, which make the treatment more complicated and the likelihood of having success it decreases. The other issue that's worth bearing in mind is that some people think that the, or it appears rather, that the efficacy of these pulmonary arterial hypertension therapies is actually lower in pulmonary arterial hypertension from connective tissue disease than it is in pulmonary arterial hypertension from idiopathic or hereditary, et cetera. So they actually have a worse prognosis. They present later, they present with more advanced disease, and they don't respond to the treatment as quickly. So that's why you really got to keep an eye on top of them and be aggressive. Um, uh, from the great uh, classic movie, Bring It On, be aggressive, be aggressive. You got to be aggressive with these patients. One of the questions we commonly ask, and even uh, earlier on today, my um, team and I were talking about which of these is the best, which of these should be the one that I put patients on. It's really hard to, to be definitive about that um, because there are 13 medicines available in uh, the United States for pulmonary arterial hypertension. And when you're deciding which of these treatments to choose in the different subgroups of pulmonary arterial hypertension, connective tissue disease being the one we're focusing on, but there's also HIV, there's also liver disease, there's also methamphetamine-associated pulmonary arterial hypertension. It's important to compare the treatment responses from these medicines. When you look at patients who have connective tissue disease-associated pulmonary arterial hypertension who are being treated, and you compare those who have idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension who are being treated, the patients with connective tissue disease do not respond as well. Six-minute walk test, um, uh, improves by about 23 meters, for example, in this a large meta-analysis. Six-minute walk distance might improve by about 23 meters in connective tissue disease, whereas it improved by 40 meters in those with idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. So there clearly is a different response. And that may be, as I've mentioned time and again, the fact that there are differences in the underlying, uh, in the other organ systems that are also diseased. The treatment is less effective in reducing clinical worsening Clinical worsening in clinical trials has different definitions, but it's predominantly hospitalization for pulmonary arterial hypertension, initiation of prostacyclins, say, lung transplant, atrial septostomy, right heart failure, or death. Death obviously being arguably the worst outcome. And when you are treating connective tissue disease associated with pulmonary arterial hypertension, it just doesn't respond as well than people with idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. 
So that failure to increase the walk as much is echoed by failure to have clinical improvement as much, or at least to hold, stay away, stay off from clinical worsening. Now, the AMBITION trial has been studied, and uh, in particular with uh, connective tissue disease-associated pulmonary arterial hypertension. And it was, has been shown that combination therapy, as I mentioned before, PD-5 endothelial receptor antagonists, that did decrease the risk of clinical failure, as well as increased six-minute walk distance, as well as other surrogate markers of outcomes, specifically in terminal pro-BNP. And that uh, its finding is echoed significantly in people with connective tissue disease. So that is replicated in people with connective tissue disease. The bulk of the people in that trial who had connective tissue disease did actually have scleroderma. So then the um, Selexipag trial, uh, which was referred to as the Griffin trial, that did decrease the risk of another composite endpoint, morbidity, mortality, N-terminal pro-BMP, six-minute walk distance. So it did reduce that composite endpoint. That was the primary endpoint. And again, in a subgroup analysis, 80% of the people in the subgroup analysis, incidentally, were already on therapies, PD-5s, endothelin receptor antagonists, or both. And in that group, they echoed the results that we saw in the primary endpoint for the large study was echoed or replicated in the connective tissue disease group. So it was consistent across um, uh, between the two groups, in particular, despite the fact that the patients were on um, some sort of background therapy. So we can safely say that the dual combination therapy that we've talked about works in all populations of pulmonary arterial hypertension works just as much in connective tissue disease-associated pulmonary arterial hypertension. Selexipag then in the Griffin study worked in all populations of pulmonary arterial hypertension and worked in pulmonary arterial hypertension from connective tissue disease. Reciguat was studied in the uh, patent trial, shown to improve six-minute walk distance. Subgroup analysis was also published in this group, uh, which showed that um, there was an, a, a sustained improvement in connective tissue disease-associated pulmonary arterial hypertension in people randomized to reciguat. Functional class improved, six-minute walk distance improved, pulmonary vascular resistance actually went down, which is a good thing, and cardiac index went up, which again is a good thing. Now, admittedly, the improvements were not as pronounced in other groups within the uh, trial, but as we've said, there's oftentimes comorbidities here. And those comorbidities are oftentimes pulmonary fibrosis or interstitial lung disease. And this is where it's become more complicated in the last six months. Because within the last couple of months, we now, for the first time, have dedicated treatment available for group three pulmonary hypertension. And that treatment is inhaled triprostinol. 22% of the patients enrolled in this trial had connective tissue disease, so a significant number had connective tissue disease. And with the inhaled prostacyclin, again, in group three pulmonary hypertension, there was improvement in six-minute walk distance. There was improvement in uh, internal pro-BMP. There was an improvement in clinical worsening, namely less clinical worsening. That's, again, in group three pulmonary hypertension. So if you have connective tissue disease and you have pulmonary hypertension, it can oftentimes be difficult to distinguish between do you have group one or do you have group, uh, group three? And now at least there an argument can be made inhaled troprostanil is approved for group one 
as well as now approved for group three. So the question that arises at least is that if you have someone with pulmonary hypertension, they have a mixture of group one and group three, for example, as is commonly happens in connective tissue diseases, should they be started on inhaled troposinol? And we're all trying to figure out the answer to that. There are new treatments becoming available. Cetatrocept recently published its phase two clinical trial uh, showing a decrease in pulmonary vascular resistance, improved N-terminal pro-BMP, and interestingly enough, improved six-minute walk distance as well. Now, we'll need to see if that gets replicated in the larger uh, phase three trial, uh, which also will include more clinical outcomes. As I often say, no one ever comes to me and says, my God, Dr. Ryan, my P- I, I woke up this morning and my PVR was seven. Can you help me out? They come in and they say, my God, Dr. Ryan, I'm short of breath. I got leg swelling. Can you help me out? Other drugs that are being developed, uh, serolutinib or GB002 is an inhaled agent, uh, which inhibits platelet-derived growth factor, which has been implicated in the development of pulmonary arterial hypertension. It's been shown to be beneficial in animal models and is now in the phase two trials. So in summary, when it comes to treating pulmonary arterial hypertension, and in particular, when it comes to treating connective tissue disease associated pulmonary arterial hypertension, there's a lot of things that you gotta, uh, gotta consider. You've got to consider their functional class. You've got to consider their comorbidities. If they're functional class, that determines what you're starting with. If you're starting with dual combination therapy or if you're starting with parenteral prostacyclines. And then you've got to follow them along closely and determine uh, when you need to up-escalate therapy. And then finally, of course, as I said, there is this concern or this question about where does inhaled treatment fall in here, in particular for people who have a combined group one and group three pulmonary arterial hypertension. So thank you very much. I know that was quite the whirlwind through uh, the treatment of pulmonary arterial hypertension. Thank you for sticking with me and as it pertains to connective tissue disease. And I would love you to join me for chapter four, which will be discussing the multidisciplinary management of connective tissue disease associated pulmonary hypertension. Thank you for your time. John Ryan, cardiologist and director of pulmonary hypertension at University of Utah. It gives me great pleasure to talk about something that is very near and dear to my heart, which is the multidisciplinary management of connective tissue disease associated pulmonary arterial hypertension. Within pulmonary arterial hypertension, there are roles from different clinicians, and there's actually a large role that the patient plays. So we want to touch on some of our own experiences in this multidisciplinary management of patients with connective tissue disease associated pulmonary arterial hypertension. So no one ever presents to me, for example, without, a, without an echocardiogram. Anyone who comes to me as a cardiologist and anyone who runs a pulmonary hypertension center, be it cardiologist or pulmonologist or both, invariably has had an echo beforehand and invariably has been informed, you have pulmonary hypertension. And then oftentimes it's up to us to figure out what the cause of that pulmonary hypertension is. In that setting, um, the most important aspect and the most important kind of person who plays a role here is really the primary care provider. The primary care team are the people who are picking up pulmonary hypertension first because they're the ones getting the echoes. Now, it can be challenging to decide to get an echo because the symptoms are so vague. Patients are tired. Patients are able to do less exercise. But oftentimes it's important to develop, or in fact, always it's important to develop good collaborations with the primary care team 
so that they can uh, know when to look for pulmonary hypertension and then know how to contact you once they find pulmonary hypertension. The other big referral source is actually rheumatologists. Unsurprisingly, as we've mentioned, connective tissue disease-associated pulmonary arterial hypertension is so prevalent and so um, clinically significant that the rheumatologists really are on top of this all the time and really need to kind of have their eyes wide open for this disease state and then refer them on to us. There is nothing wrong with referring a patient on too early. Now, oftentimes people look at me confused when they find out I'm a cardiologist and I deal with pulmonary hypertension. And some people think I'm a cardiologist and a pulmonologist, and that's not the case. Uh, We've looked at this in our own work. And within the United States, uh, 60% of patients with pulmonary hypertension are cared for by pulmonologists, lung doctors. 30% are cared for by cardiologists. And then a 10% is some sort of mixture or maybe some surgeons in there, maybe even some primary care pediatricians as well. So, so it is not uncommon to have one or both of these of cardiologists and pulmonologists taken care of. Within our team, we think it is at University of Utah. We do have a combined team of cardiologists and pulmonologists, and we do think it's important and useful to have um, both of those uh, disciplines represented when caring for people with pulmonary hypertension. The reason, in particular, is because actually. So much of pulmonary hypertension is due to heart disease or is due to lung disease. It's only that small 10% that's due to pulmonary arterial hypertension. As I like to say, any old Yahoo can take care of that 10%. It's the other 90%. That's what's complicated. You have diastolic heart failure, very hard to treat. You have chronic hypoxic lung disease, very hard to treat. But when you get referred to a pulmonary hypertension center or when you refer your patients to a pulmonary hypertension center, what you want most particularly is you want a diagnosis. Are they group one, two, three, four, or five? And that's where having combined clinic where my colleague, Dr. Hatton, Dr. Beck, they'll present, they're both pulmonologists. They'll present cases to us and we'll look at it and say, oh, there's a little bit of heart disease in here as well, or there's no heart disease and it's all lung. Similarly, I'll have a case, say, for example, of someone with uh, significant obesity and figuring out if it's just due to heart disease or if they also have obesity hyperventilation syndrome. So that's where this um, uh, multidisciplinary uh, team comes in. Then, as I like to say, the best medicine I have are our advanced practice clinicians, our PAs and NPs. They're our best medicines that we have. Because they're on the phones, they're seeing patients in the front lines, they're the ones who are uh, following up the testing, uh, following up the response to treatment, and they tell you what's actually going on. I will come in, hail fellow well met, shake your hands, say how good everything looks, and then leave. They're the ones who are, who are left having the conversations with the patients about financial stress, mental health, uh, side effects of medicines. So they really play such an integral role and there needs to be really open and often communication between the MDs and the advanced practice clinicians. And then the nurses. There are nurses in expert centers such as ours, take a lot of phone calls, give a lot of results, raise a lot of red flags when, when appropriate. And then there are actually, for people who are started on pulmonary arterial hypertension therapies, there are home visits which are done by nurses. And they need to have our phone numbers too. They need to communicate with us, communicate with the patient. There needs to be open communication. So all of these, hopefully I've been able to get across the importance of open communication between primary care providers and the pulmonary hypertension team. 
rheumatologists and the pulmonary hypertension team. Even within the pulmonary hypertension team, there needs to be open communication between uh, the cardiologists, the pulmonologists, the advanced practice clinicians, the nurses. And then there needs to be open communication with the people who are in the, in the homes, the nurses who are visiting the homes. And then central to all of this, integral to all of this, is the patient themselves and them taking on a leading role in terms of their own management, advocating for themselves, educating themselves, and uh, accessing and determining ways, working with the teams as to how to readily access their healthcare, as well as stay educated in their disease process. As I said, the multidisciplinary team is key for the diagnosis, helps iron out these group ones, group two, group threes, group fours. You'd be surprised the things that you miss. The risk assessment then is also useful, again, from different eyes, because if you have seen this before, oh, the last person I saw with lupus, with this phenotype, didn't respond very well, or a conversation I had this morning with uh, one of our uh, physician assistants was a HIV-associated pulmonary arterial hypertension. Seen this before, this is the best medicine that you should use, let's see how that goes. So that risk assessment is useful or someone with liver disease and say, whoa, 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 if we don't get this person treated and if we don't get them transplanted, they're not going to do well. So very useful to have those discussions for risk assessment, as well as I said, for determining the first line of treatment. Is it combination therapy or is it actually a scenario where a single agent is beneficial? Then nobody can do the monitoring all by themselves. You need a team to do the monitoring. And you also actually need the patient to do the monitoring too. So that's where, again, the role of the patient comes up is that there's nothing more. My nightmare is when a patient comes in and says, listen, I haven't been doing well for three weeks or for six weeks, and they turn up to clinic and and they look like they're about a step away from dying. And I go, oh, my goodness. Should have told me this five weeks ago. Or why didn't you tell me five weeks ago? So there really is an important for the physician team and the medical team um, to more appropriately to monitor do ongoing monitoring, but also the patient themselves, and then modify the treatment based on best practices and previous experiences. So, I cannot overemphasize the role that multidisciplinary teams have. You need a different set of eyes, you need different perspectives, you need different skill sets, and that's what each of these teams bring, or each of these members of the team bring. They bring different skills, complement that together develop a respectful and open communication work environment. And then you're giving the patient the best chance that they can have to do as well as they can with a tough disease. Thank you for your time. This has been an enormous pleasure for me. I would ask you to complete the post-test and evaluation of this course in order for you to get your CME credit. And hopefully you enjoyed this series. Hopefully I was able to keep you or give you some extra teaching points while also keeping you engaged in this virtual world. If I gave you no teaching points and I didn't engage you, we'd like to hear about that too. So thank you for your time and best of luck. This has been CME on ReachMD. This activity was provided by the Academy for Continued Healthcare Learning and supported by an educational grant from Actelion Pharmaceuticals U.S. Incorporated, a Janssen Pharmaceutical Company of Johnson & Johnson. To receive your free CME credit or to download this program, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.